0: If you want to turn to Luke chapter 12, we're going to show the verses on the screen as well. If you are taking notes, my message is called First Things First. This is Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, the parable of the rich fool. So someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you've ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Now, when I read this parable, the first thing that came to my mind was, this guy needs a storage unit. A storage unit would solve all of his problems, and Americans love storage units, In 1984, there were approximately 6,600 self-storage buildings in the U.S. There are now 50,000 self-storage facilities with 23 million individual storage units, which is one for every 14 Americans. The entire population of the U.S. could stand inside storage units. Ten percent of Americans own storage units, and this is remarkable if we remember that a considerable percentage of garage space is used as an on-site storage unit. Twenty-five percent of people with two-car garages don't park in them at all. Now, I'm not going to make you raise your hands but I'm trying not to judge you right now. And 33% can only park one car next to all the other stuff that's stored in the other space. Now, I would love to tell you stories of things that were found in storage units, but we don't have time. Okay, maybe for just one. Um, James Bond's submarine car from the movie The Spy Who Loved Me was found in a storage locker on Long Island in 1989. That locker was auctioned and purchased for a hundred dollars. The restored car was later purchased by Elon Musk at another auction for a million dollars. Now, I'm not saying that owning a storage unit is wrong. I'm just trying to prove the point that Americans love stuff. We are a nation that, as verse 21 says, has laid up treasure for ourselves. And this is a parable that's a warning to us. It's a warning to to all of us. Jesus warns us, take care. Be on your guard. Watch out. There's something out to get you, something that wants to ruin you, something that's really dangerous. Well, what is it? What are we supposed to watch out for? Well, verse 15 tells us, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now to covet just means to desire earnestly. It's wanting something in a bad way. It's to be greedy for something. It means desiring something too much. Complaining about things you don't have. Envying what others have. Once a friend of mine was sharing the gospel with people at a park in Philadelphia and he got into a conversation with a funny guy. This guy was kind of a character. And when he showed him the Ten Commandments, he was showing him to to show him that we kind of break these commandments. The guy said, ah, I've broken every one of those, but I don't covet. It's not in my nature. I, I have no idea why this guy said this because coveting is in all of our natures. It's actually the root of why we break most of the commandments. If we've stolen, we had to covet it first. If we lied, we might have coveted a certain reputation. If we lusted, we might have coveted a certain sexual encounter. We are a people that covet. And, And the reason that we covet is because we're not satisfied with God. We want something else, and we're convinced that other things will bring the satisfaction that we desire. So we focus on things. Not on eternal things, but on temporary things, secondary things. We focus on stuff, or on relationships, or our kids, or Making memories, or sex, or popularity, or power, or championships. We live for the things of this world. And Jesus is warning us about this. So let's take a closer look at three warnings in this passage. Number one, don't point your finger at others. Don't point your finger at others. Verse 13 cracks me up. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. So this guy's not listening to Jesus. He just waits for Jesus to take a breath, and then he demands that his brother share with him. And this just cracked me up because this happened all the time in my house. I I have two brothers. One is an identical twin, and we didn't always get along. One of the major problems we faced was that relatives would get the bright idea that they could just get us one gift and we could share that gift. Now, these are relatives that knew us. So I have no idea how they got the idea that these two wild, devilish, self-consumed twins would all of a sudden see that sharing was an important part of their character that they needed to develop. I think it's more likely that they, these relatives just wanted to get back at my parents. But anyway, you could hear in my house all the time, Mom, tell Bob to share with me. Tell Bob it's my turn. That's exactly what this guy is saying. Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Now, when it comes to... Inheritances, things can get real dicey real fast, like in the movie Knives Out. When it comes to money, even family members can have knives out. Now, in biblical times, rabbis did settle these kinds of disputes, and Jesus was a rabbi, but he refuses to get in the middle of this. His mission is not to arbitrate these kinds of personal disputes. His mission is to save lost people from their sins. And to do that, we need to see our sins. So that's what he does in this situation. He gets to the real issue. He puts his finger on the problem of greed, on the problem of coveting. You know, there is a tendency in all of us to point out what others are doing wrong and to assume that we're doing what's right. I'm an expert in this. I have decades of experience finding fault in others. This brother in this passage knows that he's right and his brother is wrong. He just needs someone to verify this, and Jesus is the perfect person to do it. But not only does Jesus refuse to vindicate him, he turns it back on him and shows him where he is wrong. In love, Jesus shows him that his problem is greed. He's coveting what his brother has. And Jesus shows him that he is the sinner that needs to be dealt with. He's the one that is in the wrong. And there's a warning for us here. Be careful when you are pointing out someone else's sin. Be careful when your focus is on what someone else is doing wrong. Jesus' words often hold up a mirror so that we can see where we are wrong. He will often use situations like this to show us the sin in our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that people never wrong us or that injustices don't occur. These Things can be very painful and difficult to deal with. But our focus should be primarily on our own hearts and dealing with our own sin. So that's number one, don't point your finger at others. Number two, don't live for second things. Don't live for second things. Now, in this chapter, Luke talks about different obstacles to following Christ, and he does so using contrast. So he talks about fearing man versus fearing God, or fearing death versus fearing eternal death, which is hell. Acknowledging God to others versus denying God to others. And then in our passage, he contrasts living for eternal things versus living for temporary things things, storing up riches in heaven versus storing up riches on earth, making your life about God versus making your life about possessions, living for first things versus living for second things. In a series of short live talks given on BBC radio during World War II, C.S. Lewis talked about first things versus second things. He said that the greatest problem in the UK is that we tend to live for second things at the neglect and the expense of first things. But what are first things? C.S. Lewis said, what is the first thing? The only reply I can offer here is that if you, if we do not know, then the first and only truly practical thing is to set about finding out. Now, can you imagine listening to this while London is being bombed and all he can say is, you better find out what the first things are. Well, fortunately, he eventually tells his listeners, the first things are the eternal ones. The first things are knowing God. And entering into a relationship with him, living for God and his kingdom, obeying and serving God, and doing the things that bring God glory. And the second things are everything else. Living for this world, living for all the things that are temporary. Second things are material things, possessions, things that belong to this world, things that don't have eternal value, and things that can never ultimately satisfy. It's what the rich fool is doing by tearing down his barns and building bigger ones. He's, he's given his life to second things and completely neglected the first things. C.S. Lewis pointed out he said you can't get second things by putting them first you can get second things only by putting first things first what he means by that is if you look to second things for joy and life and happiness you'll never find it there Because those things weren't meant to bring ultimate satisfaction and joy. They can't carry that kind of weight. That's why so many relationships fail. They can't carry the weight that we put on them. They they can't bring us ultimate fulfillment and, and happiness. That can only come from God. Being in a relationship with the eternally loving, perfect God. It can only come by putting first things first. And if you do that, then second things can be enjoyed because you won't be looking to the second things for ultimate fulfillment. So if you make food the most important thing in your life, if that's the first thing, it just can't carry that weight. It will bring some joy, but it won't ultimately be able to satisfy you. But if you put God first, then food doesn't have to fulfill that big of a role. And you're free to enjoy what you eat to the glory of God. You can give thanks for it without worshiping it. Let me give you an example. You you can try to use a weed whacker to mow the yard. And it kind of works or works for a little bit, but it's not designed for the job. It can't do the job. In the same way, if we try to use second things to do the job of the first things, they can't ultimately get the job done. They weren't designed to. Only first things can bring the satisfaction and meaning and purpose we long for. And even though we all know this, we still put second things first. Everyone seeks satisfaction from things that cannot satisfy. We, we try to wring out of the temporal what only the eternal can supply. See, the problem is that these temporal or second things eventually disappoint. The things that look so wonderful were okay, but We're still left empty. But guess what? God wants to meet you right there. He's allowing those things to not quite fulfill to show you that He is the one that can fulfill you, that He is far more beautiful and meaningful than anything we can imagine. It's important for us to realize that we were made for another world. And that the pleasures that we often experience are meant to be a taste of better things to come. So when you eat a delicious steak, enjoy it and thank God for it, but also realize it points forward to something even better. It points to the most amazing feast in the world, the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven for all those who belong to Jesus. See, if we fail to realize that we were made for another world, then we're going to set our affections on this world, on second things. And Jesus is warning us about that. In fact, Jesus says it's foolish How do you know if you're foolish? How do you know if you're living for second things? Well, according to this passage, you have to believe certain lies. You have to believe the lie that bigger is better. We see that in verse 16, where it says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, this doesn't seem like a bad plan. I mean, he had a really good harvest. He hasn't done anything illegal. He just needs bigger barns. And we all understand that thinking, don't we? We, we need bigger things. And Americans love big stuff, right? We love big SUVs and big TVs and big houses and big muscles. We used to love big hair back in the 80s. Shout out to the 80s. I'm hoping that comes back. Um, Case in point, though, the big gulp. Listen to this. In 1955, McDonald's and Coca-Cola teamed up to sell Coke at McDonald's restaurants. The original drink in a cup was seven ounces And then Coke started to get bigger. The cup started to get a little bigger. Then it was like a 10-ounce. Then it was a 12-ounce. That's what they made their cans, 12 ounces. And then Coke sold a 16-ounce and even a 26-ounce cup. That was the largest you could get. For 25 years, a 26-ounce drink was the biggest you could buy. Then in 1980, 7-Eleven began its Big Gulp campaign. It started out at 32 ounces, then went to 44 ounces, then in 1989, 64 ounces, and then it maxed out at 128 ounces, which was called the Team Gulp, and it holds an entire gallon of soda. Now, if you've ever purchased that, I am judging you right now. <laughs> I, I'm, But bigger isn't always better. It's not always better. The the problem here is not that he had a good harvest or that he needs bigger barns. The problem is that he hasn't given much thought to God or what will happen when he dies. God's the one who's blessed him with this harvest, but the blessing of material things has turned out to be an obstacle he seems to be giving attention only to his business. There doesn't seem to be much devotion to God. He didn't think about sharing what he had, using it for others, or even giving to the poor. He was living as if there were no God. He was living for leisure and self-indulgence. I mean, you see here he says, I, 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 my, 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 my. His coveting was distracting him from God. All the second things in his life were distracting him from the first things. He was not keeping first things first. Another lie that we believe, not just that bigger is better, we believe that we need more than we have. There is an inclination in all of us to be discontent, to think more about what we don't have than what we do, to, to want what others have. That's why whenever I sit on the beach, I always pick out a house right up on the beach and just dream about what it would be like to live there. Contentment in God is the opposite of covetousness. When we covet, we lose our contentment in God. When we're content in God, we lose our covetousness. It's like a seesaw. If one side is up, then the other side is down. If you make it your goal to be satisfied with second things, you will do so to the neglect of first things. And Jesus is trying to protect us from this. He's trying to protect us from letting second things hinder our pursuit of God so that we can live our lives for things of eternal significance. Now, another lie we believe is that the future is the key to happiness. We see this in verse 19. He says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, Eat, drink, and be merry. So we get to the why here. Why is he doing all this? Why does he need bigger barns? Well, he needs bigger barns so that he can relax, so that he can retire, so that he can eat and drink and be merry, so so that he can live his life in total leisure and self-indulgence. Now, did you notice how the rich man was looking to the future for happiness? In verses 18 and 19, he keeps saying, I will, I will. He's looking to the future for a time of happiness. When I get these newborns in place, then I'll be able to relax and be merry. Happiness is always ahead of us. It's always a future thing. When I get this, I'll be happy. Then I'll be able to relax. If I could get this one thing to work out, then everything will be right. Our happiness is always contingent on that one thing. Our hope is contingent on one thing. Our ability to relax is contingent on that one thing. And we're willing to sacrifice to get it. We're willing to work now so we can have it later. This rich man was willing to rip down his existing barns and build bigger ones. That's a big project because he knows something better is coming. Are we any different? We put our hopes and dreams in something and and we sacrifice to get there, but it doesn't always work out. The nonfiction book, Friday Night Lights, highlights the football world of Permian High School in Odessa, Texas. Just to give you an idea, this high school stadium holds almost 20,000 people. In 1988, the star of Permian was an explosive running back named James Miles. He was amazing. He was being recruited by the biggest schools, Notre Dame, Florida, Florida State. But during his senior year in a preseason scrimmage, he completely blew out his knee, tore his ACL, and it ended his dreams of an NFL football career. There's a terrible scene in the movie where he's just weeping. His uncle had taken care of him, he came from a rough background. He's just weeping. And say, I don't know how to do anything else but play football. That's all I know how to do. It's it's heartbreaking. What are you putting your hope in? What in the future will make everything right? What will bring that elusive happiness? Is it a relationship? A job, a house, a championship, seeing your kids overcome something or getting your kids to a certain place? Is it relief or healing from a physical problem? Is it a trip, a car, a bigger TV? What is it for you? What is distracting you from God? See, the problem isn't that we're looking forward or looking into the future, it's that we aren't looking far enough into the future. We aren't looking at eternity. The reason that we live for second things is that we're convinced that this life is all there is, but we have to look further. We have to look further out beyond our short time here on earth. We will all live eternally either with God or separated from God, which is hell. And if you put second things first, if you put your hope in some earthly dream, you will most likely lose that earthly dream here, but you also lose the joy of living with God for all eternity. But if you put first things first, you will be able to survive the challenges and trials of this life because an amazing future is waiting you with God for all eternity. That's number two, don't live for second things. Last one, number three, don't assume that you have time. Don't assume you have time. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this guy made a terrible assumption. He assumed that he would have time. He assumed that he would have time to enjoy what he had stored up. Maybe he assumed that once he retired, he could then focus on eternal things, on the first things. Do you assume that? Do you assume that there will be time? Time to enjoy what you've worked for? Do you assume there'll be time to think about God? Time to focus on eternal things, on first things? God breaks in on his master plan and says, you fool. You are out of time. He was a fool because he failed to realize that life is short. He had failed to plan for his eternal future. He failed to do what was best for his soul. And all that hard work ended up benefiting someone else. But even worse than someone else getting all your stuff, you have to give an account for your soul. Verse 20 says, this night your soul is required of you. Tonight, you'll have to give an account for your moral soul, for the things that you live for, for what was most important to you, for what came first in your life. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul?" Or what what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Listen, what good is it if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? You, You have everything, but your soul is lost. How, how can that possibly be worth it? I mean, you might live to 80 or 90, but your soul will live for all eternity. And then Jesus asked this question, what can you give in exchange for your soul? This is the real question. What can you give in exchange for a soul that has lived for material things? that has indulged in self-gratification, that has put other things above God, that has broken God's commandments. What can this sin-stained soul exchange for salvation? How, How can this soul be cleansed? What can redeem this soul? What can purchase it? Our riches won't help. Our possessions can't help us. And neither can our good works. It is impossible for our good deeds to erase our bad deeds. And to make matters worse, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is going to come back to bring judgment. Jesus refuses to be the judge over this inheritance squabble, but he will return as a judge to judge all mankind. He will judge whether we've lived for first things or second things. So what do we do? Well, I have some incredible news for you. Something of immense worth has been given in exchange for your soul. Something has been done to cleanse and redeem our sinned, stained souls. Imagine if you were rightly found guilty of terrible crimes and the judge sentenced you to death by electric chair. And then something incredible happened. An exchange. The judge took off his robes and stepped down from the bench and took your place in the electric chair. He was judged. He was killed for your crimes. This is precisely What Jesus did for you. The judge was judged. He was punished on the cross by God the Father for all our crimes, all our sins. Jesus took our judgment, He took our hell so that our souls could be redeemed, so that we could be forgiven and welcomed into heaven. And this comes to us, not by trying to earn it, not by doing more good deeds than bad deeds. It comes to us by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus alone to save us. If you find yourself this morning concerned because your life has been more about second things than first things, because you can't say that you have a relationship with God or that you Love and obey and worship God above all else. I have good news for you. God is willing to forgive you and to change you. And if you are willing to put first things first, God will give you the joy and love and happiness that you have always been looking for, both here and for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing exchange that took place on that cross where you became a substitute for us, where you, the judge, submitted yourself to the judgment of God, the judgment that we deserved, and paid a price that we could never pay so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would protect us from living for second things. We're all tempted to live for things that cannot fulfill. I pray that you would help us to live for first things. Help us to put first things first. In Jesus' name, amen.